Hello, this is Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. We would like to take a few seconds to appeal to you, our favorite listener, to subscribe to Above the Basement. There are many really good reasons to subscribe, but I'll just name a couple of them. You never have to check to see if we have new episodes as they are automatically listed on your podcast app, and it doesn't cost you anything. Just go to AboveTheBasement.com forward slash subscribe, where we have links to all the major podcast apps, including iTunes, Stitcher, Radio Public, and more. There are instructions there on how to subscribe, or you can just click on one of the subscribe buttons on that page. If you already have a podcast app on your phone, just open the app and you will see a magnifying glass on the interface. Just tap on that and type above the basement. You should see us right at the top. Just tap on the subscribe button and there you are. And while you are there, please write us a nice review. Subscribes and reviews in the podcast universe are an important piece to reaching more listeners. So please take 15 or 20 seconds and help spread the word about ATB. Thank you for your support. Okay, so on with the show. Welcome to Open Studio, WGBH's weekly spotlight on arts and culture from around the region and the nation. We took a ride early one morning to the WGBH studios in Brighton, Massachusetts to sit with arts and entertainment reporter and Boston native Jared Bowen. Jared has talked with all sorts of amazing people. I'm Jared Bowen. Coming up on Open Studio, Paddington comes to America. And we meet the man bringing him to life. After 20 years of illustrating him, Paddington is a very real friend who I enjoy um, drawing um, his adventures. Plus, John Lithgow on the actor's life. I've always said if you hear enough applause and laughter at a young age, you're doomed. (laughs) You're going to be an actor no matter what you intended. It's all now on Open Studio. Okay, so it doesn't get much better than Paddington and John Lithgow, but we'll try and match that with our conversation with Jared. Jared can be found, well, really everywhere. He is an Emmy Award-winning host of the TV series Open Studio with Jared Bowen, a contributor to the WGBH magazine program Greater Boston, and you can also hear him on the radio on 89.7, where he talks about what's going on in Boston for the performing arts on WGBH's Morning Edition and Boston Public Radio. He's also a coach and judge on the choir competition show Sing That Thing. These are only a few things that Jared does. He's a busy guy, and we were happy to get a chance to sit and talk Boston arts and culture. So here is our conversation with Jared Bowen, recorded at the WGBH Studios in Brighton, Massachusetts. I should have had tote bags for you. You should have, damn it. Since you're here at we should have tote bags. PBS and NPR. We need to have tote bags. We need more, we need, uh, we need more swag. I'm sure we can dig up some three tenor CDs for you both. Oh. Some some what? Three tenors. Three tenors. Oh, three yeah. tenors. Yeah. Were they here recently, or is that no? But they've been hawking those they... CDs for, for about thirty years. <laughs> because you have a big box and you don't know what to do with them. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a so so that that big box of CDs assisting your basement like, that applies to everybody, even the three tenors. They've got thousands of CDs that they need to get rid of that are sitting in their basement. Yeah, I have one from my album in nineteen ninety five. Yeah, so do yeah. I. <laughs> well, um, thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah. This is a cool building, and as as I said, we talked to Wick. When was it? Last winter? Yeah. No, it was last. It was this past fall. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that. Um, and that's a cool building. But this is a very cool building. 
It's uh, a great complex. So we moved in here, I think, about 10 years ago, and it's a far cry from where we used to be. But there was such history there with Julia Child and, and huh. all the, the formative GBH shows that came out of the, that building. But it's nice to yeah. be here without the, the mice and rats running around. And that building was probably, what, from the 50s or 60s or something? Oh, at least, yeah. yeah. But, you know, the only person... So I've heard from all the, all, everything I've read about you is that you're the only arts and entertainment full-timer in Boston. Is that on, still true? On television, yes. On television. On television, yeah. Okay, so you know, we have already talked with my the childhood queen. sweetheart, Joyce Cole Haywick. Yes, I know. Who's, I... A, who's amazing. And so you're like the new Joyce Cole Haywick. <laughs> well, I grew up watching Joyce. So did I. And now she's a friend of mine, and it's always a little surreal Isn't for me it? to be in meetings with her. Where <laughs> we serve on the Boston Theater Critics <laughs> Association together, yeah. and I think, how am I in this position <laughs> now when, when she's the one I grew up watching, but um, isn't she fantastic? She's great. I mean, I'm sure you weren't allowed to make eye contact and, and all of the other right. rules that she has, but... She had special yeah. rules well, for Well, especially us, for Chuck. I mean, because yeah. he, he came out, he came across a little strong about like, you know, I was like obsessed with you. And, <laughs> no, I didn't and, say that, but... And he had a Joyce Kuhelwick pillow. No, and, oh, I didn't. You know, that's, a big, that's a big lie. But bizarre. But we saw her at, we went to one of the openings for um, Cinderella. Right. And she was there. I'm like, oh, I should go say hi. So when I tapped her on the shoulder <laughs> and she turned around like, oh, God, <laughs> I could see the oh, God in her face because yeah. she didn't know who I was. She yeah. didn't know. Right. I was just a tap on the shoulder. Yeah. And she turned around and she's like, oh, Chuck. I'm like, oh, phew. I'm, I'm glad it was. Oh, I'm it's so you. glad it wasn't the I reverse. Know. Yeah, I know. Where she figured out but, it was um, you and then said, oh, God. She loves me. Come on. Yeah. She she's such a great person. She's such a champion yeah. for the arts. I will tell yes. you, you want to hear my, I've never told her this. Yes. I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I will. So when I first started out and I would encounter her over and over again, and she would never remember my name. So I, every time I would meet her subsequently, I would just make up a new name. Oh, hi, I'm Alex from WGBH. Hi, I'm Taylor <laughs> from WGBH. And then finally, I think it was when we first started having her on the air back when Emily was hosting Greater Boston, <laughs> that I think she realized, oh, I probably should remember his name. Did she call you on it? Did she know that you were? Had been making up names to her for no i've never told her this oh, now she's oh. Even know. I, that's what i was gonna ask you know does she call you alex now you know, no yeah. no no finally she realized yeah. it's jared and <laughs> yeah it's all good well if it makes you feel any better i remembered your name well thank you <laughs> so don't you don't have to feel so bad about it for you guys to work together and it, i'm sure there's a lot of you know mentoring and learning through this whole you know uh business and and uh and cult and cultural experience because and what's interesting is that it changes over the years. So you're going to be an expert in different things, even as a younger colleague. Well, I mean, first of all, I have to say I take no pride in being the only one. I, I think it's really, really unfortunate. I, I came up really covering news for Greater Boston and Emily Rooney's show, but arts were always a passion of mine. And so slowly but surely, I was able to integrate arts coverage into what we were doing at Greater Boston. But as I was doing that, the other commercial stations in town let their reporters go. Right. So Sarah Edwards, Joyce, of I course. Sarah. And, yeah, and Dixie Watley at Dixie Channel Watley, 5. Dixie I remember her. And suddenly... I was the last guy standing on, on television, and mm. it's really a shame because, yeah. as you have talked about, there is so much happening in the arts here in this region, and the arts needs to be on television. I mean, this is the, the great irony. It's a, such an irony. Yeah, we, we, we certainly talk about it on radio, and there are other radio reporters in, in this region. Certainly there's print coverage, although that's diminishing. We can talk about that too. But the arts belong on television. You want to see paintings. You want to see theater. You want to see dance. You want to immerse yourself in it as much as possible visually, 
and yet nobody's doing it. I, I, it's beyond my comprehension. Well, so pushing on that a little bit, what's the element of change to that decrease or that, that uh, lack of television coverage due to social media? All that happened before social media. Before? Definitely. It's been on its way out for, well, I've been doing this, the arts, full-time for, I don't know, probably close to 10 years now, and, and it's really in that time that social media began to ramp up. But again, it happened before that. I think social media is helping, actually. What I've noticed mm. is that arts organizations have to be their own advocates now. Uh, so a lot of them have their own videographers. They've figured out how to use social media to get their messages out themselves. Uh, I think there will always be a need for a, a curator, whether it's in news as an anchor or me as somebody who's going to come along as a reporter and, and tell the story and talk to the players. But at least social media through Facebook and videos that be, can be crafted by these institutions can tell their stories too. Interesting. Well, yeah. you know, I, I think it's something that I've kind of, and I think probably both of us have started doing more of because we're doing this podcast. I've been much more out there and searching for these things, and there's so much going on. I just started going to um, I went to the BPL, Boston Public Library. They have these author series. The, the, yeah. uh, this author, the David David Bieber Archives. You heard of that? So no. He's a guy. Uh, he used to work for BCN. He used to be a DJ, I, I believe. I believe that's correct. He's got one of the biggest archives of rock and roll memorabilia in Boston, like in the world. Every playbill, every ad. The Bieber Archives is actually over at Ernie, oh, Ernie Box Bar, yeah. Place oh, really? at the Norwood okay. Space Center. Ah. That that's where the the Bieber Archives are now. But anyway. But I went to that, and it was full of. It was a ton of people there, but I'd never heard about it until until social media. But I mean, last night I went to go see a guy who wrote a book at the uh, Mass Historical Society. Oh, there are right, these yeah. little teeny things that are going yep. around all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, people are there, but it seems like a lot of people just don't know about them. So. so on that note, how do you, you know, it's probably a longer conversation, but the sifting process, the interest factor versus like what's going to resonate with Boston, how does that funnel happen if you have a thousand things or a hundred things but Jared Bowen's going to speak about something on that night. Well, I have to say, always the hardest part of my job is how often I have to say no. I'm one person trying to get out there to see all of these different things. I do have a great staff who help me on the radio side and the television side, uh, two really strong producers, but I'm ultimately the one who has to be out there. And I want to be out there as much as possible, but I also need to sleep. And I also... Yeah, exactly. And I need to have a little bit of a personal life. Uh, But stories resonate with me for different reasons. One, it'll surface artistically that somebody is doing something really different that I haven't seen before. And I've seen a lot at this point through all the stories that I've done in the years of coverage. Or I think a lot of my news background comes into play as well. I still look at even exhibitions through a journalistic perspective. What is the story behind this? Who is the artist? What led them to create this? Often that's as interesting to me as what I'm actually seeing on the museum walls or on the theater stage. I mean, sometimes I'll just be at my desk and I happen to pick up, and this has happened several times actually, and there to pick up and take a call and somebody is able to talk about what they're doing in such a way that I'm galvanized and it is something that I never would have known about before. As long as I've been doing this, there are still museums that I'm going to for the very first time because there are so many institutions and groups working. I mean, you probably know that we have more arts organizations per capita in the greater Boston area than anywhere else in the United States. To your point of like trying to pick which ones to do. But you've also done, 
it's not like you're just doing mainstream stuff that everyone's going to... You're not just doing Blue Man Group and, and things that people... I've, I've actually seen. never done Blue Man Group. That's one of the ones You've I have Blue Man yeah. Group. They're fantastic. Yeah, right. But you did, another, <laughs> you did one just recently. I saw Turner and Constable. Yes, yeah. Which is a little obscure little story in the museum of these amazing paintings that you want to throw into... The, you know, the bigger ones, the yep. ones that more people are going to see, but give these little stories that might point someone in a different direction than so normal. So is it the art side of your brain or the news side of your brain? It's, or is it, the, how do they work together? It's both. So I'll yeah. tell you why we did that story. We did it for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, my producer Rory brought that to my attention, that exhibition. I once saw a map of Massachusetts and basically where the Berkshires are it was just listed as there be dragons here. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. people in Boston yeah, don't yeah, think of the Berkshires. They, they they go to the Cape or, you know, they'll even go to New York, I think, before thinking of going to the Berkshires. I think that's changing to some degree. I know it was half and half at one point attendance in the Berkshires, obviously a Massachusetts community between Massachusetts residents and New York residents. Mm-hmm. I think they're making headway and trying to shift that. So it's my contention that we should be covering Western Mass more because it is such a thriving arts community out there. So that was one reason I did it. Two, I love Turner. His paintings are absolutely incredible. They're, they are still radical today. And you just, you all you have to do is look at one painting and you can be mesmerized for hours. And you'll spend the next week thinking about those paintings just for what he does. But then, as Rory brought to my attention, I was less familiar with Constable. Turner and Constable had, I think it's been beefed up in in subsequent centuries, this rivalry that they had because you had Constable doing these beautiful traditional British landscapes. He loved home. He never traveled very far. So he painted what he knew and what he really loved versus Turner, who is traveling far and wide as far as he could, despite restrictions in 18th century Europe. I was fascinated by the fact that he would go to these places that he wasn't even familiar with and could produce these revolutionary paintings and and find himself. So one, from the journalistic perspective, I was fascinated by this rivalry. I was fascinated by their techniques and their stories and how they got there. And then to go out to the Berkshires, that was a perfect example, actually, of of all of these different elements that just came to the fore in, in really terrific ways, I thought. I wonder if you could comment sort of on the you and your role of the as the arts core of GBH. Do you try to connect arts with culture, with history? What are the things you guys think about at GBH? I think all of the above is true, but it's after the fact. I mean, to be very honest with you, when I set out to do a story, I definitely don't have an idea of what the story is going to be when I arrive at the museum or with the actors. It's not until I sit down to write the piece or to talk about it on radio that I really have a sense of how it all came together. I think I look at the elements now that make me understand why something ties to history. Uh, One of the, the, the story threads I'm paying more attention to now because it's surfacing everywhere is how art responds to what's happening in the world at this moment. And obviously there is a tremendous amount that's happening in the world that's really affecting people's lives. And especially in theater, that is where you want to go to see yourself reflected. That's not an original phrase on my part, but theater, theater mirrors society most definitely. And I think with theater, you come together, you're part of a community, you're not sitting at home or on your phone watching Netflix by yourself, but you're there with living, breathing people next to you, you're hearing commentary. I saw a show at the Huntington not too long ago, where people were talking back to the stage, that's how moved they were. And I thought, I'm so glad that I was present for this because I felt part of something. I can't tell you how many times I've seen elements of myself play out on stage 
And sometimes you don't realize they're part of yourself until you see these characters and you watch them interact. But those are all stories that I find after I've seen something or after I've interacted with the players and have time to think about it, let it marinate, and then and then write about it. I find that we've done a few live podcast episodes, and I found that a lot of the people in the audience, so many of them come up to us afterwards and say, why don't I go to more of these? What have I been missing? They've forgotten what it's like to be in a room with other people. A movie theater doesn't count because you're just sitting there quietly. When you're at a concert, when you're at a, a book reading, when you're at a play, you're part of the art on stage. You're part of it. Well, and I, Go ahead, yeah. You're not just scrolling on a Facebook Live thing to get to the middle. It surprises them how much, they're like, <laughs> how much they enjoyed it. Well, the poignant thing for me has been after we've had major tragedies, September 11th or the Boston Marathon bombings, people want to congregate. Theater, to a lesser degree, only because I think, especially remembering the Boston Marathon bombings, I think that people in the city were afraid to be in a building with a lot of people. Uh, it took people a little time to get back right. together. But then they did, or they found spaces to be together again, to at least talk or to experience something, to feel part of a society. You didn't want to be alone at that time. And definitely people headed to museums. And I know some of the area museums had free days and people took advantage of it uh, for different reasons. Either they wanted to be in a space or they just wanted that communing time with art, too, which I think is so vital. Yes, it does remind us how important this is. And, but it's tough to participate, too. Ticket prices aren't necessarily always inexpensive. Despite the fact that we have so many arts organizations, I was struck by a recent study that said that most people go to, I think it's 1.8 art events a year. That's how the number breaks down. As important as it is, we probably don't get out as much as, as yeah, we might want to. You mentioned the bombing, and you know, there's nothing like time that obviously heals people in a city. And in some ways, there, yes, there's people that are stronger and culture that are stronger because of it, ironically. But I remember seeing the movie Stronger a couple of years ago. You know, you saw that one with Jake. I did, Gyllenhaal. yeah. I interviewed and, him for that, yeah. But it was probably four years after the bombing, right, that they released it. Yep. I guess my question is, as a broadcaster, as a journalist, as someone that looks at how the theater reflects the world, how a movie reflects the world. When is too soon? What are the things that go through your mind when you say, wow, this is raw? How do we talk about it? Should we talk about it? One, I think it shifts. And two, I think it's a case-by-case basis. I remember interviewing Oliver Stone after he made the World Trade Center movie. Actually, there's a whole other story about how he got really angry with me because my first question to him is why was it necessary to make this film? I normally don't start off with a direct, hard question like that. Normally yeah. you want to tee something up a little bit when you're interviewing, but when you do these junket-style interviews, which I don't even do that much anymore because you're so limited in time, they only give you about four or five minutes. He's Oliver Stone. He's tough. He can take right. it. Well, but well, he got, right. You have to cut to the chase, but how do you balance? Yeah. But he yeah. got really angry with me for that question. Wow. That was a case that I thought it was too soon. I think that was only a couple years after September 11th. It's a legitimate question, though. It was an absolutely legitimate <laughs> question, and he didn't really have an answer for me. And I'm getting really mad, and Nicolas Cage was sitting next to him. We were doing a twofer in that one, and Nicolas, I was in this bizarre position where he ends up stepping in to try to strike some sort of harmony in the interview, but he didn't really answer. Wow, I, I wish I could do an impersonation of Nicolas Cage yeah, trying don't. to do that with you right now. <laughs> no, please don't. Don't. I could just, I could just no, picture well, stop. the room. <laughs> I had spunk then. That was a long time ago. I don't know where I get the conviction to... to... Yeah, whippersnapper. But, so, yeah, so that concept of too soon, I mean, do you, do you think you hit a nerve with him? I certainly had to, because he, he had to have been considering that himself. That story was so 
epic in scope and it was still so raw, especially in Boston, because we had a connection to it. And, and that was a time where I covered a lot of the fallout from September 11th in Boston because I was predominantly doing news at that point. So for me, it was very raw. I spent a lot of time telling that story and, and seeing the, the multiple angles of it, so much so that I will tell you, I, I still, I don't think I can ever go to the, the 9-11 Museum in New York. I was so in it when it happened that it, I just... This must have been right after college, or I mean, you... Yeah, you, I started here in 1998, so, so yeah, it was three years into it. Yeah, yeah. And I covered a lot of the Boston Marathon bombing aftermath, too. That was pretty much the last big story before I switched over to the arts, and I thought the play that was done, Finish Line, that was done at uh, the Schubert Theater... I didn't think that was too soon. Uh, it was done just a few years after the bombing, but yep. they had spent a lot of it. It was a documentary play. They had spent a lot of time with victims and family members, and it felt like they had done due diligence in telling that story in a really true way. So really, I, I think it's there are a lot of different factors that come into play, and, and emotion is a big one. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of these kind of, whether it be artwork about a tragedy or a play or a movie, I think it's all part of the healing process when people do it. So I think it's important. And the right time is not going to be right for everybody. Well, you know, it took Arthur Miller years to process World War II before he wrote these stories about the American family that really dealt with essentially the PTSD that America was dealing with from what the war did to this country and what war did to communities and did to families. Tony Kushner, he didn't write Angels in America in the height of the AIDS crisis. Right. It took time to think about what that really meant and how that really resonated for him to craft one of the greatest pieces of American theater ever. But we're getting very deep. We need to talk about cartoons and stuff. <laughs> yes, Please. yes. Okay, well, okay. We're, not, we're going to continue a little deep, but I wanted Joe to ask yeah, a question. Joe's Go very ahead. superficial, but I think this is going to be Joe, good. our photographer, Joe Wallace, photography. It's nice to meet you officially. I was at the uh, Boston Speaker Series and watched your interview with Lisa Genova because I'm working on a personal project about Alzheimer's. Before I heard you speaking today, I wanted to ask you about, from a craft point of view, because on this project I'm interviewing people and getting them to really share some really personal stories with me, and listening to you talk about these experiences of interviewing Jake Gyllenhaal or your Joyce, your mentor, or the room where the the conflagration of Nicolas Cage and Oliver Stone. And Lisa, during your interview with her, talked about how empathy is a, a way to connect with people as a, a platform for a, a, a deeper connection. And as an artist, I thought that was really poetic on how she put that. So a couple of questions. Sorry, I'm not, they don't normally let me speak. From a craft, <laughs> from, a, from a craft point of view, so. <laughs> I'm glad they great. have. So why do I have my only, so from a craft point of view, I'm curious on, you clearly have a gift of connection and enabling people to share with you in a profound way because you have you learn how to do that and get the best out of people in a very short amount of time how has that evolved have you evolved your craft as a journalist and the second part of the question was the artist in me thinks wow it's such an amazing gift that you've had these really concentrated incredible conversations with so many other artists and I personally feel like when I have them each one of them is additive in this profound way to my well-being and isn't that the point of arts in general does that feel like an enormous responsibility what do you do with that gift that you've been given it clearly makes you a better journalist because you have this stack of information and creativity that you can stand on the shoulders of but how does that inform you as a journalist do you feel the obligation to really 
do your best. Because I know with my Alzheimer's project and all these people share with me, the burden sometimes feels a little intimidating. I think to take the second question first, it, it, it all just becomes cumulative. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, to be honest, because I think it would be intimidating. Uh, I, I get in these conversations, and that's when I, you know, I start talking about I did this or did that, and I think, wow, I've done a lot. I've been exposed to a lot of people. Um, and that's almost overwhelming for me. So what I enjoy most about it is how cumulative it becomes and all of the, the pathways that it essentially creates. So I can talk to Lisa Genova and understand more about Alzheimer's patients and neuroscience, but then I can make those connections to an Edward Albee play and the way that he understood an American couple in the 1960s and created Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I mean, this is essentially, I think all the good people on the planet are trying to do the same thing, which is to have empathy and to, to find a way into other people. I never slack off. I can tell you that. I, I, I take everything extremely seriously. I'm a perfectionist. I can't watch myself. I can't really go back to old work for that reason because I will judge everything and be hypercritical. But I will tell you that everything that I do absolutely stays with me. If you go back to the neuroscience analogy, it's almost as if I can feel these pathways being embedded in my brain or, I don't know, maybe I'm getting too heady. And your first question is... I will tell you, my, the, the main mentor in my life, the mother who raised me journalistically, is Emily Rooney. Um, and she really shaped my frame of thinking and how to be so open in thinking. And that also means, to some degree, being cynical and being critical and not, of course, believing everything that you're told. She had a mentor, too, right? Yes, yes she did. He was fun. <laughs> so it's interesting. Sorry to interrupt, but it's... As a mentor, talk about neurons. I mean, some of those have yeah. passed right to you. Yeah, so. and she is so much her father, Andy Rooney. And, and that's what I've always said. You know, I'll joke when I'm speaking to a group or something that I, I was fortunate to tap into a family of journalistic blue bloods. Um, but it is true. I mean, they're, and they're both brilliant writers, mm. too, which is hard to find, in, especially in broadcast journalism, I think. But for interviews, I just do as much research as humanly possible because I need to feel that I have as much information as possible in me. And then it's just about sitting down and listening to the person. Interviewing is actually my favorite part of the job. I still find writing really, really hard. Even after all this time, it never gets easier. And I think that's probably a good thing because it keeps me on my toes. It keeps me challenged. And I just love interviews because I, I love sitting down and talking. There are times that it has to be an interview if you're interviewing a politician or it's something contentious or controversial. But most of the time, I think of it as a conversation. And you just want to get in. I, I picture it as the stream that you get into. And all of a sudden, you're just going along. Because you're, you're with that person. Even with the speaker series, that will happen to me. We're, we do that at Symphony Hall, and it's sold out, 2,600 people. And there are moments that I have no conception of the audience actually being there. You're mm. just in it with them. And that's bliss. So, it goes out. so are you from this area? I grew up in Upton, Massachusetts. Upton, Upton. Mass. So and, it, and so you went to Emerson, right? I went to Emerson, yep. yeah. I'm sure neither of you know Upton. I know of Upton. I don't know if I've been there, but I yeah, know see, that's what everybody says. I think we had 65 kids in my graduating class, oh, right. and yeah. that was two towns. Remind me, so tell me where it is. It's right next to Hopkinton, where the marathon starts. Oh, yeah, okay, sure. And I remember when uh, I think I was in high school or college, and Kiss 108 voted us the most boring town in Massachusetts, <laughs> and we all kind of looked around and went, "Well, that's true." Let me just say, I'm very fond of it. My parents still live there. I'm I, sure it's a wonderful I love town. the town, and it's I'm great. Sure it is. Yes. <laughs> my sister's kid goes to a camp called Camp Downer. Oh, really? <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> and 
it must be someone's last name or yes, something. Yeah. But we, it's the big joke yeah. in the family. Like, oh, you're going back to Camp Downer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like, oh, you're going to Upton. It sounds nicer. Yeah. It yeah. Sounds, um, so you grew up there. Optimistic. And what about the artistic side? Have, have you? Do you have a, th- a theater or, or a music background? Or I have none. Or? I was in maybe one or two high school plays, just a little bit parts. I've never had any artistic talent whatsoever, which yeah. is why I have to spend my life talking about other people's talents. But to that end, I mean, have you always been, have you gone to shows? Has that been a fascination for you? Or? It was belated. And this is what I think is the power of art, is that I was raised, you know, both of my parents worked and they weren't really raised with arts and culture. So we weren't a family that went to museums. We weren't a family that went to theater. Hmm. But somehow it found its way to me. And this is what I think is extraordinary about art. I mean, I do remember an, a high school English teacher, Mrs. Wild. She yeah. still lives in Framingham, Massachusetts. And she would uh, put all of these playbills up on her bulletin board. Huh. And I would think about what that life would be like to go to New York and see shows and it was just such a foreign world to me do you think mrs wild is 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 in part that was a trigger i mean you obviously is that what kind of springboarded you i think she helped a lot she was also the editor or the the advisor to our high school newspaper i think i might have been the editor oh interesting yeah and so i i think she probably recognized this and she knows this i in fact i had a great moment a number of years ago when we honored tommy toon with the boston theater critics association he was our guest of honor one year and i had remembered somehow that she, she, he was her all-time favorite so i was able to invite her and bring her and introduce her so that's how i paid back but she has always stayed kind of in the back of my head is, is one of the most influential factors in, in yeah. I guess, making me understand how possible it all was, that it wasn't just something I was seeing in movies to go to New York and go into these big halls well, and, and I things think like it's, that. You know, it's obviously a testament to teachers. Well, she used to tell us, I love to call for reservations, wild party of two. <laughs> she was quite funny. Oh, that's but, funny. Uh, and she was not the person at all. Are you going to the wild party? <laughs> yeah, this would be a great time. Um, but now that I think about this a little bit more, I guess... You know, she probably saw that in me and, and ran with it to some degree and in a way that I had never thought about until just this moment. But I, I do want to talk about that, that line that you made from Emerson to, you went to Dateline, is that correct? Yeah, I had this, it was essentially a glorified fellowship at Dateline, yeah. What you're doing now seemed to be your goal, was it? Uh, the one thing I knew coming out of Emerson was that I couldn't be a reporter because I did all of those classes, we had to produce packages, TV news packages. I knew I couldn't do it for a commercial station because even working for WERS at Emerson and, and doing our TV packages, uh, we would cover real stories and I would have a really hard time with having to knock on somebody's door after a fire or a car accident, oh, yeah. those things. And I did some of those stories in the early days of Greater Boston. I just didn't have the stomach for that. So I knew I had to do something different. And then I, I got this fellowship that put me in New York. So I worked for Dateline, which was way fun. It was the heyday of the news magazine shows with with Stone Phillips and Jane Pauley. Do you remember the Dateline timeline? <laughs> that they, that's what I did. I had to do the research for that. We did that and this 
And uh, the other story I worked on was the the story of the missing Manhattan millionaires hmm. about Shante and Kenneth Kimes, this mother and son grifter team who would work their way across the country, integrating themselves into wealthy people's lives, and then they would murder them and take their money and then move on to the next wow. one. And she looked like Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> and then they made a TV movie and Mary Tyler Moore played her. I mean, it was just crazy. And then they ended up catching them right around the corner from 30 Rock. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. So And then I came back and, and Emily had just started this show and I thought, well, that that sounds like what I want to do. It's public affairs, longer format stories. You're thinking and talking more about the news of the day and the issues of the day. The arts weren't even on my radar in terms of covering them in the way that I do. I think if you had told me when I was 22 or whatever that I would be doing this, my brain would have just exploded. I still can't believe I'm doing it. You're 24 well, now, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So am I. The one thing I did like about what you're doing like like the Turner and Con, I don't mean to keep on bringing it up, is that it's it's a it's a whole bunch of things put into one. It's not like you're just commenting on a fire and you're talking to those people and then you then you're moving on. There's like there's like history you have to pull into it. There's arts you have to pull into it. There's the story the the backstory of whoever you're talking about, and then there's there's um it's a re, it's almost like a like a dissertation of sorts that you have to pull together to make this story. It's not it's not that's so simple. You have to do your research. Well, and I think a lot of what you see is, is my own personal enthusiasm. I mean, that's why I love this job. I still get excited. I, when, I'm, when I'm reading about Turner and Constable, I think, I thought this is incredible. I can't wait to share this with people. And then I think, oh, am I, how late am I to the party on this one? Everybody probably knows this already, <laughs> but and I'm finally just getting here. But I yeah. just find such joy in... in in, in telling these stories and finding these these things out myself. Well, you know, I think just to circle it to art, as someone who's been a musician like my whole life, I, it's blown me away that at first we were just talking with musicians. I kind of did some soul searching and I said, wait a second, I'm, I've been a, a songwriter and a musician. I mean, I'm frankly giving that up for a while. That's a little ironic. Like I'm talking to other musicians that are doing what kind of I want to do. You know what I mean? But... What I discovered was that this process is almost like writing a song. It's an artistic process. I was just going to say that to you because I don't mean to sound pandering or something, but you guys are really, really good. Uh, I know, know. we are. (laughs) This conversation is so... Sam is sitting right here from GBH. I was so nervous about doing this because I'm used to being on the other side. (laughs) I I hate talking I and I realize some people interview me too. Yeah. I do. do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it doesn't happen very often. It's happened like twice, but... Yeah. Because you don't want to talk about yourself, you. But we're talking more about what I do, which is the comfort zone for me. Yeah. But then you just saying your songwriter, it I'll put it all together for me because you yeah. spent a long time observing. Yeah. I'm sure. And yeah, and introspection. Well, yeah. To, it's. I, I think the content happens to be art that you emulate and that you discuss. But you could talk about sports or politics or economics, but I still think it'd be artistic for what you do the process of it. Yeah, I think it's a lens because then that's what I do at Speaker Series now. I just was with Jeb Bush the other night. Hmm. It doesn't change. I, I think the subject matter almost doesn't matter. It's it's about how you approach and understand the person you're sitting next to or in front of. Yeah, you know, we've talked to a few people who do these interviews all the time and you can tell when they get into their rote answers. They take the conversation where they expect you to ask the questions and they go into the stories that We've heard them say before or something, and it's almost sometimes it's been a battle where we say, but what about this? We try to get them, and then you can kind of see the surprise in their face, and then you see them start to think, 
And then you see them become animated. Then you see them becoming re- remembering things that they haven't thought about before. No one's asked them before, and that's when you get really interesting. Or stuff. they pull an Oliver Stone on our ass, <laughs> and they go, they go ballistic. They go, they, <laughs> so they throw a haymaker at your face. No, that actually hasn't happened yet. No, yet. Yeah, body yeah. language is a huge part of it. That's when you know you've really hit gold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, that's something that we missed. Yeah. What time is it now? 10.52? What's yeah. your day today? What are you doing today? Well, I'm trying to get I have a really, really busy few weeks coming up because we're doing Sing That Thing, the speaker series, yeah. and Open Studio, and I'm filling in on BPR kind of all at the same time. The uh, Boston Public Radio. Yep. With Jim and Marjorie. Okay. Oh, you're filling in yep. for, for them? So I or? fill in. I'm there their fill-in yeah I'm the substitute oh for sorry our, to derail it but I mean no, no, no. I, I love those guys oh yeah they're great yeah, they're yeah. so much we have such a blast I love Marjorie's voice do you I don't know what it is <laughs> <laughs> no I, I just realized how that sounded that I don't no. <laughs> do you Ron you like her voice I've always <laughs> no but there's something about and Jim's and Jim's too like I, I love the quality of their voices. It sounds really weird. They could talk about their what they had for breakfast this morning. Yeah. I'd be like, wow, that's really interesting. Oh, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, I'm sorry. Uh, I've never thought about that because I've known Marjorie for a long time. We were friends before before I started working with her. But anyway, so I have all these things coming up, which means I'm trying to get a head start. So today I'll be writing a piece on this new Mexican photography show at the MFA. And How many single projects do you have going on at once? Cause, oh, a ton. Yeah. Have you found that you're, because uh, I'm going back to school, I'm going to go for my master's in history. One of the things I'm terrified about is writing again. I know how you say writing is, yeah. is tough for you. How's your writing changed? Oh, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know if it's changed. I'm faster. Yeah. I can write faster now. You can get, you got to get those tricks that'll get you started. And Walking is my trick. Yeah. If, if I get stuck, I'll get up and, and, well, frankly, I'll walk to the bathroom or something, mm. and just the, the act of physically walking, I'll, I'll, the line will come that I need to, huh. to, to, to wherever. Usually, I don't have a trouble starting a piece. I find ending a piece is really, really hard. Do you dictate anything? No, I, I think it's really important to have my hands on the keyboard or to so handwrite my do questions. Pen to pen, you don't do pen to paper. I, I, I handwrite my questions. I think that's really important. Um, I once interviewed uh, Jeffrey Donovan, who was doing Hamlet on Boston Common, and I walked into his trailer on the Common, and he had all of his lines written out. Uh, yeah, that's what in, you're supposed to do. Handwritten, handwritten all over the walls. And then I asked him about it, and then he told me that once he finished, he was starting all over again because oh, wow. he felt the act of writing put the words into his body, and I feel it's the same way. That's another interviewing technique I feel. If I'm writing it down, then it's going to be in me, and, I, and I'll... I'm more apt to remember. And I'm actually trying to figure out how to take notes during class because mm. a lot of the kids they're on their little laptops, and I'm the only you one with a little I'm like, I feel like I'm with a chisel. I'm like a chisel. I'm like, I'm like exactly. into stone. Everybody's pointing at that. Who's that guy? What What is that thing he's like? Yeah. He has in his hand. But <laughs> but it's but my handwriting's terrible. I can't uh, even read my handwriting after I read it. But it's been something I'm I'm kind of struggling with. Yeah, um, trying to figure out you know how to how to do that because yeah. I'm not used to writing. Anymore. I don't think you can change. I think there aren't there studies now. You probably know this. Aren't there studies now that I, I think if you learn one way, uh, that's the way you're supposed to learn. Yeah. Well, thank you for. I, there's something I've I've started doing this year, and I want to, and I'm starting to ask everybody, and it's and it's really kind of I call it Tim Ferriss disease. You know, what Tim Ferriss is. No, he has his own podcast. He's got millions of downloads, yeah, and he asks these questions. And I and I and I love the questions that he asks. It's it's uh, if you could gift a book, or if if you could recommend a book, or it could be a film, or a play, or something, a documentary. What would you gift? Because I'm I'm always writing these things down, and and I don't mean to put you on the spot. If you have nothing, that well, comes no, to mind, because you said usually I can't remember these things at all. 
uh, you know, what to suggest. But as soon as you said book, I think the last book that I read, and it was actually a little while ago, it was about a year and a half ago, that just emotionally leveled me was this book called A Little Life, hmm. uh, which is a bestseller, so it probably won't be a surprise for a lot of people. But I... First of all, I had to slow down reading it because I didn't want it to end. I just wanted to prolong it and enjoy it and savor it. And then it wrecked me at mm. the end, but in, in a really profound way because I'm still thinking about it. And it's the first thing that comes to mind when you ask me a year and a half later. Wow. Who, do you know who wrote it? Um, oh God, I, can't, That's okay. I, I, I can't remember her name. I, I can't remember those names either, but it's called uh, a, a Little l- Life. A Little Life. Have yeah. you reread it? I don't know that I can ever reread it, to be oh, honest. Interesting. Well, Jared, thanks very much. Thank really you. Enjoyed, this I has really been a pleasure. This, and I'm um, looking thanks, forward Jared. for you to have us on the show and you know do a whole episode on us. Okay. <laughs> we would like to thank Jared for talking with us and would also like to thank Sam Brewer for his hospitality and getting this conversation set up. You can discover all that WGBH has to offer at WGBH.org. But in particular, you can catch Jared's show, Open Studio, on Fridays at 8.30 p.m. And also catch season five of the show, Sing That Thing, premiering on April 12th, 2019 at 8 p.m. Both will be on WGBH Channel 2. Go to AboveTheBasement.com. You can join us on Patreon. Sign up for our newsletter. Listen and subscribe to our podcast. Like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter. And look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. On behalf of Ronnie and myself, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. And remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique. How would you like to join us in creating great conversations that inspire and connect? Patreon is a membership platform that provides a way for creators like us to build relationships and provide exclusive experiences to subscribers or patrons. We have been self-financed since we got off the ground in June of 2016, but in order to continue to fully invest all we can in each episode, we need your patronage. For more information, please go to patreon.com forward slash above the basement.